Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices discussed a new monoclonal antibody, nirsevimab, to prevent respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, in infants. RSV can lead to severe respiratory infections, particularly in infants and older adults. Evaluation of prevention strategies should be analyzed to determine if practice changes are warranted. Let's hear from pharmacist Kimberly James to review literature on the prevention of RSV in infants and pharmacologic intervention. Our learning objectives today are to recognize the mechanism of action of nirsevimab and how it can prevent RSV, to identify patient populations that may benefit from receiving nirsevimab, and to evaluate potential impact of giving nirsevimab for prevention of RSV on current practices at Mayo Clinic. First and foremost, what is RSV? With RSV season rapidly approaching, it's very important to evaluate various prevention options for our most vulnerable populations. I first wanna start with some RSV evolution. In 1956, RSV was discovered from chimpanzees. The virus was isolated from chimpanzees with respiratory illness. It was originally named chimpanzee coryza agent, otherwise known as CCA. A year later, in 1957, the same virus was identified in children with respiratory illness, and it was renamed to RSV. RSV stands for respiratory essential virus. Most infants are, have been infected by the time they are two years old. It is the leading cause of childhood acute lower respiratory infection, both in preterm and term infants. And it is most common during the winter virus season. Typically the season is between November and March of every year, but this does vary geographically. It affects our most vulnerable populations, including those who are preterm and older adults, and reinfection can occur year after year. First and foremost, how is it spread? It spreads easily through the air on infected respiratory droplets. It can enter the body through the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. It can live on hard surfaces for hours, including countertops, cribs, and toys. The terminal bronchioles, as noted in the picture below, is where the replication is most efficient. Mucus secretions increase in quantity and viscosity, and it pulls in the, the, the ciliated epithelium and it produces widespread mucus plugging, and it causes more and more inflammation. Some symptoms can occur in stages, typically not all at once. A lot of times they portray as cold-like symptoms, including running nose, decrease in appetite, cough, sneezing, fever, and wheezing. In the very young, some of the symptoms you may see are irritability, decrease in activity, and breathing difficulties. Some risk factors include attending childcare centers, infants, especially those who are premature, congenital heart disease, chronic lung disease, those with weakened immune systems, neuromuscular disorders, as well as older adults. Some long-term effects include recurrent wheezing, asthma, a decreased lung function, and allergic sensitization. Long-term effects can decrease the quality of life and increase healthcare utilization resources. 
The SPRING study evaluated premature infants between the ages of 32 to 35 weeks gestational age who was hospitalized for RSV under the age of 12 months. In the control group, they evaluated premature infants also between 32 and 35 weeks gestational age who had no hospitalizations for any acute respiratory illnesses. Follow-up telephone calls were done every four months and annual visits were done until the child was six years old. Through six years old, the incidence of wheezing was significantly higher in the RSV group compared to the control group. In the RSV group, nearly one half of the population experienced wheezing by the time they were six versus around 25% of the controls. For total wheezing was a little bit different. Total wheezing was significantly higher in the rate of wheezing observed in the cases instead of the controls by the year of five, um, in the year five column of 32.5% versus 24%. At six years of age, however, there was not significantly difference between any of the cases or controls for any of the wheezing types. So in conclusion, they evaluated that levels of wheezing was associated with severe RSV disease persistent to at least five years of age for those late preterm children. This study looked at a longer term for those in adulthood. Adults face an increased asthma risk after infant RSV bronchiolitis and a reduced respiratory health-related quality of life after having RSV pneumonia. The population included 43 adults in Finland, and they evaluated the patients for 30 years. They had 86 population-based controls, and the results were that pulmonary function tests were significantly lower in those with former RSV lower respiratory tract infection patients, and there was more um, evidence of asthma in adulthood for those patients. In conclusion, they concluded that RSV lower respiratory tract infection hospitalization in infancy was associated with an increased risk of permanent obstructive lung function reduction in adults. Supportive care options that we can consider include antiviral medication, acetaminophen or ibuprofen, and fluids. However, antiviral medication is typically not used for the treatment of RSV. Acetaminophen or ibuprofen can be used for pain or fever, and it's really important to keep our population hydrated with fluids. I next wanna discuss our current state of prevention. Since there are not a lot of treatment options, it's important to look at how we can prevent RSV from occurring. Hand hygiene is very important at all times of year, but especially during RSV season. Avoiding close contact with sick people, especially when newborns are brought home from the hospital, family members and friends wanna come visit the children just to see how they are doing. However, when you have a lot of family members hugging and kissing on these babies, they are more susceptible of getting RSV. In adults, some of the only symptoms can be cold-like symptoms or none at all. So it's very important to monitor to make sure that we are keeping our babies safe. Disinfecting surfaces. Because the virus can live on hard surfaces for hours on end, it's important to disinfect regularly. And the bulk of our conversation today is monoclonal antibodies. Back to our RSV evolution. In 1966, an inactivated vaccine for RSV was developed. There were four clinical trials that tested an inactivated vaccine in children who had not gotten RSV. The results showed that 80% of the vaccinated participants ended up being hospitalized and there were two toddler deaths 
it, the reasoning remained a mystery until several years later when it was determined that the antibodies in the vaccine actually bound to RSV and did not neutralize it. It uh, was a phenomenon called antibody-dependent enhancement, which caused the immune system to ramp up, essentially, and more and more of the antibodies were building up, and the viral antigens started building up further and further, causing inflammation. It was determined that a successful vaccine would only be dependent on the F-protein structure. However, the F-protein is not stable, so it took many, many years to try to determine how we can target this F-protein. When it fuses with a cell, it allows the virus to enter and hijack the cell to reproduce and change its shape. So in 1998, halivuzumab looked at this F-protein structure and was FDA approved. It was approved in 1998 for preterm infants born less than 29 weeks or those with other comorbidities, including chronic lung disease and congenital heart disease. However, it has a 28-day duration, so five intramuscular doses of 15 milligram per kilogram per dose are needed throughout the season. It does have some limitations. Because of its short half-life, there are needed to be five separate doses monthly throughout the season, and it is restricted to indication of certain comorbidities. Most recently, nirzuvimab was FDA approved this year in 2023. Its name brand is Bayfortis, and it is otherwise known as the RSV vaccine for infants. It is, in fact, a monoclonal antibody, but you may hear it being referred to as the infant vaccine for RSV. It was approved through breakthrough therapy and fast-track designations and was approved on November 3rd, 2022, in the European nation and on November 7th, 2022, in the United Kingdom. Very recently, on July 17th of 2023, it was FDA approved in the United States. As we've touched on, again, you may hear it referred to as a vaccine, but it is, in fact, a human immunoglobulin G1 kappa monoclonal antibody. It targets the pre-fusion confirmation of the RSV F protein at site zero. The modification in the FC region is why it differs from palibuzumab, extending that half-life. It has an absolute bioavailability of approximately 84% and a medium time to max concentration of around six days. It's degraded into small peptides by catabolic pathways. And the most important, <clears throat> important thing I wanna to touch on on this slide is the half-life. It's approximately 71 days with studies showing a measurable antibody concentration of approximately 150 days. Its main characteristics are because of that extended half-life, one dose is needed for the entire RSV season. So our first, assessment question is which of the following mechanism of action of nirzivimab? Does it target the pre-fusion confirmation of the RSV protein at site zero? Does it target the post-fusion confirmation of RSV at site zero? Does it target the pre-fusion confirmation of RSV site at site two? Or the post-fusion confirmation of the RSV F protein at site two? All right, fabulous. The correct answer is A. It does target the pre-fusion confirmation of RSVF protein at site zero. B is incorrect because it targets the pre-fusion, not the post-fusion confirmation, but it is at site zero. C is incorrect because it does target the pre-fusion confirmation, but at site zero versus site two. And D is incorrect because it targets the pre-fusion, not the post-fusion confirmation at site zero, not site two. Now let's move on into some clinical trials. 
There were quite a few clinical trials that ultimately got nirzevimab approved through the FDA. The first was trial one, a phase one randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And this was the population of healthy adults aged 18 to 50 years old. The dosing regimen included nirzevimab with a group of 102 and then the placebo group of 34. It did show a favorable safety profile similar to the placebo group and was well tolerated in all study subjects. Trial two was a phase 1b, 2a, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that was done in preterm infants born 32 to 35 weeks gestational age, had 71 in the nirzevimab group and 18 in the placebo group. It also showed a favorable safety profile, this time in our healthy preterm infants, and the extended half-life supports protection for the entire duration of RSV season. Phase three was a phase, trial three was a phase 2B randomized, placebo-controlled through 150 days post-dose. It looked at a little younger population for healthy preterm infants born 29 to 35 weeks gestational age. There was 969 in the nirzevimab group, 484 in placebo. It did show fewer medically attended RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infections and hospitalizations from a 2.6% in nirzevimab group versus 9.5% in the placebo group. This next trial was the MELODY trial, named nirzevimab for prevention of RSV in healthy preterm and term infants. This was the initial cohort. It was a phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that used weight-based dosing of nirzevimab or placebo. It encountered patients from 160 sites in 21 countries. It looked at 1,490 infants born at a gestational age of at least 35 weeks and less than one years old. The nirzevimab group had 994, the placebo had 496. For the medically attended respiratory tract infections, there were 12 in the nirzevimab group versus 25 in the placebo group. Hospitalizations, six in the nirzevimab group versus eight in placebo group. Antibodies at day 361 were detected in 58 nirzevimab group at a rate of about 6.1% versus five in the placebo group at 1.1%. Big difference there. For the adverse events, there were 67 reported adverse events in the nirzevimab group and 36 in the placebo group. Adverse events were typically grade one or two in severity, included pyrexia, discomfort, local pain, site injections, as well as swelling. There were a few serious adverse events as well, but none were related to the treatment groups. There were three deaths, two gastroenteritis and one failure to thrive, and there was one grade three generalized macular rash that presented with that resulted without treatment. This is a continuation study from that Melody group, and it is a continuation of that initial cohort. The initial cohort was halted due to COVID, and it was resumed a year later. So it followed subjects at least to 151 days and is ongoing to day 511. Then the nirzevimab group, there was 1,998 participants and 996 in the nirzevimab group. It showed efficacy against medically attended respiratory tract infections by 78.6% and efficacy against hospitalizations at 76.8%. 
it needed it had 57 hospitalizations that were averted and the number needed to treat was approximately 53. The next study was safety of dirzevimab for RSV in infants with heart or lung disease or prematurity, and this was the MEDLEY trial. It was a phase two, three, randomized, double-blind, palivuzumab-controlled study that looked at high-risk infants who were eligible to receive palivuzumab. High-risk infants were defined as less than 35 weeks gestational age, those with chronic lung disease or congenital heart disease. It looked at safety and tolerability and had 925 that were enrolled, 616 in nirzevimab group, 309 in the palibuzumab group. The results show that there was similar adverse events between those who received nirzevimab and those who received palibuzumab. Medically attended RSV lower respiratory tract infections were resulted in 0.6% in nirzevimab and 1% in the palibuzumab group. And it also showed similar serum levels at the end of the study. There were two notable adverse events in the nirzevimab group. One included a heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and one maculopocular rash following a placebo dose. There were five deaths in the nirzevimab group, one in palibuzumab, but all deaths were unrelated to the treatment. Most of the adverse events were also grade one or two, like the previous study, and included rash after 14 days, post-dose, pyrexia within seven days post-dose, and non-serious um, injection site pain. Our next study is the second season study. This looked at 262 children who had chronic lung disease or congenital heart disease in ages of 15 to 16 month old babies. 252 of those children completed at least 150 days of follow-up. There were three treatment groups. The first group were those who received nirzevimab in the first season and nirzevimab in the second season. The second group was palivuzumab in the first season and nirzevimab in the second season, and palivuzumab in the first season and palivuzumab in the uh, second season. The results showed similar safety profile in uh, to palivuzumab, and an incidence of adverse events was similar across both all three treatment groups as well. Nirzevimab achieved serum exposures at levels that were associated with efficacy. There are some ongoing trials since this is a newer medication. The MUSIC trial is a phase two uncontrolled trial to evaluate the safety and tolerability, pharmacokinetics, and occurrence of anti-drug antibodies. It's looking at immunocompromised children less than or equal to 24 months, and it was completed February of 2023, but the results have not been published yet. The HARMONY trial is a phase 3B randomized nirzuvimab versus no intervention. It is looking to evaluate the incidence of RSV, lower respiratory tract infection hospitalizations. Infants born at greater than or equal to 29 weeks gestational aged, zero to 12 months are included, and it's estimated to complete in March of 2025. The CHIME study is a phase three, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, evaluating the incidence of RSV, lower respiratory tract infections in those who are both inpatient and outpatient. It's looking at infants also born at greater than or equal to 29 weeks gestational age who are entering their first season. It's estimated to complete November of 2025, so more to come. Let's now move into some recommendations for use. First big question, who should receive this? The ACIP met and have recommended 
that neonates and infants less than eight months born or entering their first RSV season receive nirsevimab, and children eight to 19 months of age who remain vulnerable, which will be defined momentarily. The dosing regimen includes infants born during or entering their first RSV season at 50 milligrams for infants less than five kilograms and 100 milligrams for infants who weigh greater than or equal to five kilograms. High-risk children who are entering their second RSV season has slightly different dosing at 200 milligrams. This will require two separate injections of 100 milligrams each. This can be given on the same day, just two different sites. For children undergoing cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass has various dosing that does differ from the traditional dosing. Infants less than five kilograms require a 50 milligram dose as soon as the patient is clinically stable after surgery, regardless of the time elapsed. However, for infants who weigh greater than or five kilograms, we'll have an additional dose as soon as the patient is stable after surgery. If it has been less than 90 days since the initial dose, the dose should be 100 milligrams, but if it's been greater than 90 days, the dose should be 50. Some additional dosing considerations that are important to note, if nirzevimab is administered, palivuzumab should not be administered later that season. If palivuzumab was administered initially, but there has not been five doses given, one dose of nirzevimab should be given and no further palivuzumab. If palivuzumab was administered in season one and the patient is eligible in season two, the patient should receive nirzevimab. And if nirzevimab is unavailable, Palivuzumab should be administered as previously recommended. For the timing, in the first week of life for infants born shortly before or during RSV season. For those shortly before the start of RSV season, for those infants born less than eight months, and shortly before the RSV season, for those eight to 19 months who are at increased risk. What is that increased risk? infants aged eight to 19 months with at least one of the following. Chronic lung disease of prematurity that require medical support, including chronic corticosteroid therapy, diuretic therapy, or supplemental oxygen anytime within six months of the RSV season. Severe immunocompromise, cystic fibrosis that have manifestations of severe lung disease or a weight for length of less than 10th percentile, or American Indian or Alaska Native heritage. This does leave a little gap of eligibility for patients who could qualify for, for palivuzumab. So when should a patient receive palivuzumab? Children who qualify for palivuzumab who are ineligible for nirzevimab. Children with anatomic pulmonary abnormalities or neuromuscular disorder. Children with hemodynamically significant congenital heart disease and recipients of heart transplant. This will typically be those patients that do not qualify for nezevimab because they're older than eight months before they reach the second season. So it is a small cohort, but they could be patients that would qualify for palivuzumab that would not qualify for nezevimab. And for immunocompromised children less than 24 months would be assessed on an individual basis and could potentially receive palivuzumab over nezevimab. This is from the package insert. A second season of palivuzumab is typically recommended for prophylaxis in preterm infants born less than 32 weeks gestational age who required at least 28 days of oxygen after birth and who continue to require supplemental medical therapy. Co-administration with routine vaccines. 
include simultaneous administration of nirzevimab with age-appropriate vaccinations, and nirzevimab is not expected to interfere with immune response to other vaccines. I made this chart comparing nirzevimab and palivuzumab. Some things I want to note is the serum half-life. Palivuzumab has a half-life of 18 to 21 days. Nirzevimab is 59 to 66 days. The target population for palivuzumab is for high-risk preterm infants versus all infants for nirzevimab. The frequency also varies. It is monthly during RSV season for palivuzumab versus once per season for nirzevimab. And the number needed to treat, 17 for palivuzumab according to the impact study group and 12 in the nirzevimab according to the Melody study. This brings us to our next question. Which of the following patients qualify to receive nirzevimab and which dose is appropriate? Our first answer choice is four-month-old male who weighs five kilograms with no prior medical history at a dose of 50, a four-month-old male who weighs five kilograms with no prior medical history at a dose of 100, a 14-month-old female who weighs 10 kilograms with no prior medical history at a dose of 100 milligrams, and a 14-month-old female who weighs 10 kilograms with a history of congenital heart disease at a dose of 100. All right, well, spoiler alert. <laughs> the, the correct answer is B, the four-month-old male who weighs five kilograms with no prior medical history at a dose of 100 milligrams. A is incorrect because the patient would qualify for nirzevimab but the patient weighs five kilograms. If the patient weighs less than five kilograms, it would be 50 milligrams, but they, if they weigh greater than or equal to five, it would be 100 milligrams, a little tricky there. Our next patient is a 14 month old female who weighs 10 kilograms with no prior medical history at a dose of 100. They would not qualify for the second season or Zevimab. And D is incorrect because this is a 14 month old female who weighs 10 kilograms but because of the ACIP most recent recommendations, they would actually not qualify for nirzevimab. And the dose, if they did qualify, would actually be 200 milligrams instead of 100 milligrams. Briefly, I want to talk about RSV prevention for adults. There have been two very recent um, vaccines that have been approved for the prevention of RSV in a, the adult population. The respiratory essential virus vaccine, or Breezeville, is FDA approved for passive immunization as well as active immunization. For passive immunization, it is FDA approved for pregnant individuals 32 through 36 weeks gestational age and for active immunization for those greater than or equal to 60 years old. It targets both strains of A and B RSV and it is a single 0.5 milliliter intramuscular injection. Our second vaccine is a respiratory central virus vaccine adjuvanted or Orexv. It is FDA approved for those greater than or equal to 60 years old, and it also targets that pre-fusion F protein at site three. It must be reconstituted with an adjuvant at the time of use, and it is also a single 0.5 milliliter intramuscular injection. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices met this past Friday to recommend the respiratory central va vaccine or a breezevel for pregnant individuals who are between 32 and 36 weeks pregnant. It was found to reduce an infant's risk of RSV hospitalization for approximately 81%. They did recommend that this would be given seasonally, typically in the months of September to January to protect babies born October to March. Most infants whose mother receives the vaccine will not need nirzevimab. 
There are some exceptions, including infants who are born less than 14 days since the mother received the vaccine. Infants born to pregnant people who may mount, may not mount an adequate immune response. This includes immunocompromised patients as well as HIV patients and other exceptions. Infants who have undergone cardiopulmonary bypass, which would require that additional dose. And infants with substantially increased risk of severe RSV disease on a case-by-case -case basis. I now want to move into the healthcare impact that we could see. This was an expected impact model that was done with a static decision analytic model that was developed to estimate nirzevimab's impact on RSV-related health events and costs. They did look at the entire U.S. birth cohort as a basis, and infants were stratified into different groups to account for the risk of severity of the illness. For the current standard of care, it looked that it saw that 529,915 medically attended lower respiratory tract infections could potentially be seen in infants. 47,000 hospitalizations and a cost of $1.2 billion. It did show that RSV-related hospitalizations occurred in 93% of infants who were not eligible to receive palivuzumab with the current standard of care. It then looked at how nirzevimab could expect to reduce. It showed that it could have a reduction of 290,000 medically attended lower respiratory tract infections, 25,000 hospitalizations, and $612 million in reduction. This is an extension of a static model, estimated cost per health event averted. It showed that a possible aversion of $2,662 per outpatient visit, $7,000 per ED visit, almost $20,000 per an inpatient admission, $90,000 per an ICU admission, and a total of $102,811 in quality-adjusted life years saved. This is for the expected number needed to immunize. This is according to the CDC looking at possible reductions in the cost and how we could have the risk versus benefit. It saw that 17 outpatients would need to be immunized to prevent one outpatient um, visit. 128 inpatient would need to be immunized for one inpatient stay. Sorry, 24 people would need to be immunized to prevent one inpatient day. 48 patients would need to be immunized to prevent one ED visit, 581 to prevent one ICU admission, and 194 to prevent one ICU day admission. For the wholesale acquisition cost, important to note that this is just the cost of the vial itself. It does not include administration fees, lab visits, or any other clinic visits that may be associated. So this is strictly just for the vial itself. For palivuzumab, for a 50 milligram vial, it cost almost $2,000 for an approximate cost for the entire five doses for the season of $8,000. For a 100 milligram vial, it cost $3,000 for an approximate cost for the entire season of five doses at $15,000. Nirzuvimab, on the other hand, cost $495 per dose with a vaccines for children cost of $395. For health equity, it is included in the Vaccines for Children program 
which is geared towards children who are uninsured or underinsured, as well as American Indian or Alaska Native and Medicaid eligible children. It is the first monoclonal antibody to be included in the program, and it could be administered in a hospital or outpatient setting. It is important to note that only about 10% of hospitals are included in this program. It's mostly for outpatients. The next big question is insurance. Will insurance cover map? To be continued, we do not have an answer for this just yet because it is so new and um, insurance companies are evaluating whether they wanna include this on their formulary. However, it is promising because the vaccines for children is included. So even if the patient does not qualify for through their insurance to receive the vaccine, they could go under the vaccines for children program. Next, let's look at Mayo Clinic's impact. So we have an AME plan for nirzevimab. It is recommending, very similar to the ACIP recommendations for a single dose for infants up to eight months of age who are born during or entering their first RSV season. A single dose for those eight months through 19 months of age at a high risk for RSV or entering their second RSV season. If palivuzumab has been started before nirzevimab is available, the patient can continue to receive palivuzumab until nirzevimab is available. Again, you can receive palivuzumab up to five doses, and then if nirzevimab becomes available, you can get, then give nirzevimab. If nirzevimab is administered, the patient will not receive any additional doses of palivuzumab, and palivuzumab may still be given for patients who are ineligible for nirzevimab. Of note, administration is typically done in the outpatient setting, but could be requested for inpatients, especially those with an extended stay. Our last question is, would you recommend giving nirzevimab for RSV prevention in infants? Right, lots of different responses here. 9% say no, 18% says neutral, and 73% say yes. In summary, nirzevimab could help reduce hospital admission rates for infants due to RSV. Studies suggest that nirzevimab will be a safe and effective option for prevention of RSV in infants during RSV season. And the nirzevimab dosing strategy could reduce the number of visits and staff resources compared to the current regimen. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.